0: Greetings listeners, if any, and welcome to DM Dad, the podcast about running D&D and other RPGs for kids. A great way to spend time with your family now that your friends are too old and have all moved away. So this is take two of my uh, flip-through review of Survive This, Dark Places and Demogorgons, the role-playing game by Bloat Games, So written by Eric Bloat and Josh Palmer uh, It's take two because I realized that the uh, episode was already coming up on the one-hour mark and I wasn't even finished with it so I'm going to have to pick up the pace of this <clears throat> this time So... Um, I first became aware of bloat games because I'm a big fan of swords and wizardry white box and of supplements and additional material produced for swords and wizardry white box and bloat games have, uh, some zombie supplements for white box. And I also love zombies and undead. Um, they're my favorite type of uh, monster and horror is one of my favorite genres. Um, so, recently, uh, Bloat Games were offering the print-on-demand copy of Dark Places and Demogorgons at a greatly discounted price, and I said, what the heck, and picked up a copy of that. So, what Dark Places and Demogorgons is, is, a, it's basically, uh, the premise is, the players are teenagers in a small town who uh, investigate and encounter paranormal activity. If you've been following my podcast, you probably are already saying, hey, that sounds like... Kids on Bikes. And it does, it is a very similar concept of uh, for the game, at least in terms of the premise of the game, what sets Dark Places and Demogorgons apart is Dem- Dark Places and Demogorgons uses the open game license. It is an OSR game, and it is backed up by D and D mechanics. The uh, the cover art is is really evocative. It's the the blue cover rather than the special edition red cover. The the title font deliberately evokes uh, the red box D&D and uh, the uh, the kind of forward uh, specifically mentions menser D&D. So that is uh, the sort of the inspiration. However, um, it also borrows some mechanics from um the black hack probably not directly from the black hack because the black hack isn't listed it isn't mentioned anywhere in the game and it isn't listed in section 15 of the open game license as printed in this book um but it 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 likely draws from games that also drew from the black hack so that's probably the um the lineage there it opens with some flavor text, just setting the scene, describing the 1980s in Jeffers- Jefferson Town, Kentucky, a small town, where lots of creepy stuff has been happening. Um, and the local reverend is blaming it on a role-playing game called Dark Places and Demogorgons, which is abbreviated DP&D, and Persand, obviously. So when you glance at it on the page, it looks like D&D, and it's, it's a really... It's a really exciting twist that this game has. There's almost like a a metafiction element to it where the game you're playing is called Dark Places and Demogorgons and in-game your characters are playing a fantasy role-playing game called Dark Places and Demogorgons. Um, And and, uh, I really like that twist. And then, of course, the mechanics of the game that you play in real life are backed up by mechanics which would be very similar to the fictional fantasy role playing games. hard to discuss this without getting confusing cuz metafiction and things like that can can be like that. They can go around in loops. I even wondered if it would be possible to run a very simplified D&D game within this game, like have your have your the players player characters roll up characters for D and D, and you know, go through just a, a really brief scenario that could foreshadow some of the main events, but that would take a lot of planning. However, you know, the door's open. Um, the next couple of pages, uh, so it says basically just a two-page spread, which briefly explains what a role-playing game is and how to play it. It's only a two-page spread. In fact, it doesn't even cover both. Um, pages. Well, there's a th- there's a third page which is about half a page too um, that describes character gener- generation. Um, one thing that struck me going through this uh, the first time is that although every RPG rule set has a section for absolute beginners, for the most part this rule set is written by gamers for gamers. It drops a lot of um, terminology and concepts very casually that it assumes you're familiar with um and as i'm basically the target audience i i'm an experienced rpg gamer um that's fine you know i i have no problem when, when it casually mentions disadvantage for the first time without explaining what disadvantage is it, that that's explained later in the rules so nothing's left unexplained but the first time disadvantage is mentioned it's just like they just drop that there but I know what disadvantage is, and so does so does pretty much everybody who plays D. And that's the core audience of this. People who are already playing fantasy role-playing games and they know what these concepts are. Whereas I think Kids on Bikes was definitely because it's such a departure from DD style mechanics, I think it took greater pains to explain its concepts to people who were unfamiliar with role-playing games and from being involved on the Kids on Bikes Facebook community. I know that there is a number of people who are running that game who have never even played a role-playing game before. That's the, that's going to be their entry point. Because not everybody actually wants to play a fantasy role-playing game, but that doesn't mean they don't want to play a role-playing game. But Dark Places and Demogorgons is, at heart, a fantasy role-playing game and is backed up by those mechanics Um, It is marketed as an OSR game, and that's where it's placing itself. Whereas Kids on Bikes has nothing to do with D&D-style fantasy role-playing games. So when you get into the the meat stuff, the attribute bonus chart... So basically, you're going to roll 3D6 in order. And the order is... Strength, Intelligence, Wisdom, Dexterity, Constitution, Charisma, and Survival. Survival is the unique stat that they um, use just for this game. There is a picture of a sheet of lined paper with all the character information, like a blank character sheet written out. And you can get these, I believe, for free from uh, RPG and RPG Now. And I love this character sheet. Um, of all the free or very cheap downloadable OSR character sheets that I have found, this is the only one that puts the stats in the OSR order. The Strength, Intelligence, Wisdom, Dexterity, Constitution, Charisma, that order, that's actually the second order. The original order was Strength, Intelligence, Wisdom, Constitution, Dexterity, Charisma. That's the white box order. From the Greyhawk supplement, which introduced the Thief class onward, that's when Dex became one of the uh, Prime Requisites, so that's when Dex was moved ahead of Constitution. The reason the stats are in this order is they are in order of primary requisite, <clears throat> prime requisite stats for each of the character classes, and they're probably originally in Gary Gygax's preference. That I, I believe Gary Gygax liked fighters best, and that's why strength has always been first. And he liked wizards next. So that's why intelligence is second. And then eh, clerics, wisdom. And then the thief class, because that was the Johnny come lately. That wasn't one of the original three character classes. And then you have things that are important to everybody in order of importance Constitution, because everybody needs hit points. And charisma, because, you know, it's going to affect hirelings, henchmen, mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, how good you are at talking monsters and other villains out of killing you. So this is the only OSR character sheet that puts the stats in the right order. Um, all the other ones, they, they have these beautiful designs on them, but they put, this, they put the stats in modern order that was adopted in 2nd edition Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, which is dividing them into the three physical and three mental stats. And I mean is this a big deal? No. They're still the same stats, they still work the same way, but it really pisses me off when they don't put the stats in the right order. If you're if you're marketing your sheet as an OSR sheet, you need to put the stats in the OSR order and even Frog God games in the the uh, the character sheets that come in the back of Swords and Wizardry don't put the stats in the correct order, they put them in the modern order, and I just don't understand why. So well done to Bloat Games for finally getting an OSR character sheet right, and this is the only one that I use. Basically, I'm either using this, and I just change the names of the saving throws, or or you. if I'm playing swords and wizardry, just use the single saving throw and cross out the survival stat and stuff. I'll either use this character sheet, or we're using 3x5 index cards so um, obviously if you roll 3d6 to get your stats and then depending on what you're what you end up with you get a modifier and uh, the modifier is the the kind of what I th- what I think of as the the complete uh, range where 3 is a negative 3 4 or 5 is a negative 2 6 to 8 is a negative 1 9 to 12 is 0 13 to 15 is plus 1, 16 to 17 is plus 2, and 18 is plus 3. Then um, you get the survival stats. So the stats work as you would expect. Um, the, The main difference is this is not meant to be a heavy combat game. So although the uh the stats so dexterity does buff your ac and uh gives you a bonus to hit with ranged weapons and strength gives you a bonus to hit with melee weapons and a bonus to melee damage um you're not going to be actually using the stats that way that much presumably because you're playing ordinary teenagers and you're going to be encountering supernatural monsters so you're not going to go and fight them toe-to-toe. You're probably going to need to run away. And intelligence, um, well, you're not, you don't have access to magic because you're not a real magic user. Even if you play one in your metagame, you know, metafictional D, P, and D game in-game, your actual player character does not have access to magic. So intelligence is used for, what well, says, uh, problem-solving and speaking additional languages. But the survival stat, survival points represent a player's in-game ability to re-roll a failed attempt on a dice roll at the cost of one survival point per re-roll. Each failed dice roll can only be re-rolled once. If the player fails again... Then the player must take the second roll as final, even if the second roll is less advantageous than the first failure, and cannot spend another point to re-roll. I don't see a mechanic in here where if you fail by a certain amount, something even worse happens. So that's a moot point, but it is saying it is basically pointing out that you fail a roll, spend a survival point to re-roll, but if you still fail, whatever. You you know, you can't do it again. There is no limit to how many survival points can be spent per gaming session, although you can only spend one on a given roll. However, survival points are only recovered at one point per gaming session, so spend them wisely. So, I mean, if you rolled your 3d6 for survival points and you got a 3, and you spent one during a session... Then the next session, you'd get that point back. But if you spent all three, you would still only get one back. And then you'd have only one for that next session. Hit points. This is different. To determine a character starting hit points, simply roll 2d6 plus the Constitution Bonus Modifier. If the total rolled is less than 5, adjust the character starting HP to 5. So you're guaranteed at least 5 hit points. And you start off by rolling 2d6. So even though you're a level 1 character, it's almost like you have two hit dice already. Um, You're going to see... A lot of things like that that help the the characters in this um and it's not because the game is going easy on them it's because the game is you know people talk about how balanced encounters is not a thing in osr but you cannot get less balanced than the premise of this game which is that you are an ordinary person with no particular skills at fighting or doing magic or healing you know you're just a teenager and when I we get to the back section with the monsters, you know, there, there will never be encounter imbalance or encounter balance in this game. There will never be a point where, oh, this is a fair fight. So giving the characters an extra d6 of hit points at level one, you know, or giving them a break that when they're reduced to zero hit points, they might not just die outright. That's not helping them out, you know the this game is still if you if you want to approach it as a combat game you it's still going to be really really difficult so little things like this are necessary and most welcome hp are lost as the character takes damage during the course of a session but can be regained with rest resting for eight hours will bring the character back to full hp normally i don't like that rule in an osr game the the long rest gives you all your hit points back um but like i just said for this it makes sense because the the balance is so skewed that a little thing like that you know is not going to overpower your character and you know, it's not going to make you um be reckless um obviously you do get an additional uh 1d6 plus constitution bonus modifiers um Every time you level up, um, there's a lot of things. A lot of d6 is used in here, both you know, hit points and damage, um, and usually that 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 makes me think, oh, this is taking uh, taking a knot or taking a, a page from white box. but I don't think that's the case here, um, especially because Eric Bloat specifically referenced Menser D and D. Um, I think the reason D6s are used so frequently is to, to simulate that real-worldness that this isn't a fantasy world where you have more hit points because you're a different class and where you can swing a really big sword and do extra damage. The fact that everything is based on a D6 as far as the characters are concerned is to you know underscore the fact that you're just an ordinary person and a d6 is all you got mending wounds um after at the gm's discretion after combat a character can attempt to mend wounds on another character restoring 1d4 hp this requires five minutes of uninterrupted concentration to perform and can only be done once per day note a character cannot perform this on herself i use the mending wounds house rule in uh white box as well 1d4 hit points once per day is not a lot. Um, it's really more about it's really more about keeping the game moving, because a level one character would have to go back to town after every single encounter if they if they didn't do that. And you know the game I'm running for my kids, for instance, is is basically a hex crawl. So they'll never get anywhere if every time they meet something they have to go back to town and heal up for several days. And you know that since they're level 1, their cleric can't cast any healing spells and they haven't found any healing potions. So mending wounds once per day to get a couple of hit points back is not imbalancing the game. And again, it's one of these things that even if you don't like that rule, it's pretty necessary here. Another thing I noticed is that whenever there's a pronoun, a generic pronoun used, it's always the feminine. So it's a bit of inclusive language on the part of bloat games. So uh, well done for that. Saving throws. This game has unique saving throws. Now it has five saving throws, um, and they are not specifically attached to the ability scores. Well, so that would be six saving throws anyway. So it's definitely um harkening back to the original d and d style saving throws, however, they have unique names um one thing about the uh the original d and d saving throws you know death and poison and uh wands and um paralysis and polymorph and dragon breath like i i I can get my head around why they're grouped that way, you know things that want to kill you outright. Um, limited magic, um, things that want to change the physical nature of your body, like polymorph and petrification, dragon breath, which is usually a dodging out of the way thing and staves and spells, which is like hardcore magic. I get, I get, I feel like I get why those saving throws are there. I never understood the numbers. I never understood where Gary Gygax got the, the numbers, the target numbers that you needed to roll to make your saves. I am 100% certain that there was a logic behind it because I don't think Gary Gygax did anything without some kind of logical rationale. I'm just, I cannot for the life of me figure out what that rationale was. I don't know why the fighter's one goes in a certain direction and why the magic user's one is different. I just, I've never understood where those numbers came from. So where do these numbers come from? Well, um, what you do is you roll 4d4 plus the character's constitution bonus for each of these and that's how you generate the target number um so it's completely random um and I really like that because you're probably going to end up with numbers that look at a glance like the original D&D saving throw target numbers but they won't be they won't they won't there won't be any real logic behind it apart from the fact that you get a little bump if you got a high constitution and then it's a roll under or tie system and this is the first um this is the first hint of borrowing mechanics from ultimately from the black hack is that that uses a roll under although it is a a tie is also a success, whereas in the black hack, you have to roll under, a tie is still a failure. So basically, whenever you need to make one of these saves, you roll a d20 and you want to roll under or tie that number. And if you roll higher than it, it's a failure. And the saves are courage, critical injury, death, mental, and poison. So courage saves are rolled, um, they're basically like a morale save for a non-supernatural opponent or dangerous obstacle. So the the game master might require the character to, um, when faced with something scary but not supernatural, to roll a courage saving throw. If they fail, then they get a, a cumulative plus one, to their role every single time they fail. So, um, it will be harder to pass if you, um, if you keep failing. It doesn't specifically say so, but presumably once you pass it, you don't ever have to pass it. You don't ever have to, to, to test it again against that same obstacle or opponent. Um, at this point, it also mentions the uh, what happens when you come across an actual monster, a supernatural monster, and that is something similar, but it's a terror check, and each monster will have a terror stat, and you will roll a d20, but you want to roll higher than that. Now notice here, it specifically says for the saving throws, rule under or tie, and for the terror check, it says rule higher than the terror stat. That almost implies that, you know, you know, like in the D20 system, the armor class, if you equal the armor class, it's still a successful hit. If you equal the DC, it's a success. Um, this implies that you need to beat the DC or beat the monster's terror stat. However, as a as a game master, if you don't think that's fair, you could probably easily just say, you know, equal or exceed. Um, it says in bold, terror checks are not saving throws. And I think one of the reasons that's in bold is because it is it goes the opposite way. Instead of like the black hack, which uses roll under for everything, or the d20, which uses roll high for everything, this mixes them. So the saving throws are a roll under and everything else seems to be a, a roll of d20 and roll high if you fail either your courage check your courage saving throw or your terror check you have to roll on the failed courage terror effect chart it's a d6 so a 1 in 6 chance of each of these outcomes you run away at full speed and are terrified for 30 seconds you are partially stunned you take 2 steps back and lose your action You urinate in your pants, lose your action, and you are at negative one to all rolls in AC for the encounter. You faint for one minute. You attempt to find a place to hide and cower for the next 30 seconds. You loudly scream like a little kid for the next 30 seconds, lose all actions. So that's a lot of fun. The next save is Critical Injury, which you roll when you take 50% or more of your maximum HP in damage from a single attack So if your max HP is 10 and you take five or more from a single attack, you need to roll a critical injury saving throw um, if you succeed, then you suffer only the HP loss. However, if you fail, then you lose all bonuses and you're at negative four on all die rolls for the next twelve hours. It just says for the next twelve hours, it doesn't say that you could rest to negate that. so you can take eight hours of rest potentially and still have four hours of being at you know negative four and no bonuses. That's you know that's a significant consequence. It's also another reason to stay out of direct com, com, uh, combat with the um, the scary monsters. Now, um, one of the reasons I'm doing this right now, well, there's two reasons that I'm doing this review right now. One is Chuck Thorin did a flip through of uh, Vigilante City, another Bloat games uh, RPG. Um, And I thought that turned out well, so I thought I would have a go at doing this one. And the other thing is that Colin Green had asked me about the Black Hack, and this uses some um, mechanics from the Black Hack. And we're about to get to one of the big ones. Um, When I reviewed the Black Hack, I pointed out that I wouldn't use it as my core or base system, but I would pull things out of that. Um, When when questing beast did his review of the black hack he pointed out that all the rules are very modular and you could just pull individual rules out of them and add them to your game without really upsetting anything or breaking anything and that's kind of what I Think that's kind of what bloat games has done here is that it's it's mostly emulating um, a version of basic D&D and therefore it looks very similar to old school D and D like O D and D and any of the basic clones it has a lot of overlap with that. But he's also pulled out some mechanics that, um, are famous for being in the black hack. Although even those mechanics were apparently famous in the OSR blogosphere before. So one of these is the death mechanic. And, um, Questing Beast in the Black in his review of the Black Hack pointed out that the way that the reducing to zero hit points puts you out of action makes it harder for you to die in the Black Hack. Check out because you you can't you can't go to negative hit points in the Black Hack. You just if you if you're reduced below your maximum, you're still at zero, and the same rule of rolling on the out of action table applies. But check this out. Death saves are rolled when a character sustains damage taking them below one hit point. Oh wait, never mind. I was thinking that was negative one hit point. Um, so it actually is the same rule. Um, I was thinking that there, were, that there was going to be one rule for negative hit points and one rule for zero hit points. <laughs> So it actually is the same rule. It's the out of action table. So if you if you reduce to zero, um you uh you're out of action for the rest of the encounter. And then if you if the rest of the party survives the encounter, you um roll on the out of action table. And it's it's pretty much identical to the um to the black hack table. A uh, one is KO'd, just knocked out. 2 is concussed. I think it's called fat head in the black hack, but it's the same idea, disadvantage on all tests. Cracked bones, your strength and dex and con are temporarily at negative 2 for the rest of, for the next day. 4 is crippled, your strength and dex is permanently reduced by 2. Disfigured is your charisma is reduced to 4 permanently. And 6, dead, not alive anymore, so uses the same language as the black hack. So anyway, I'm glad I caught that. Um, this is probably my third or fourth read-through of the, uh, the rule set, and like I said, my, my second take at uh, doing this review. And this is the first time I've realized that that's not saying you roll a death save at negative one hit points or below. It's, it's below one hit point, which is zero or less. Um, one thing that's not clear from the wording is whether you roll the death save and then presumably die if you fail, and if you succeed, and then uh, when the fight is over or they are out of danger, a character that is taken out of action can roll on the table below to see what happens to them. So, it actually does make it a bit more deadly than standard black hack because with black hack you don't roll a saving throw when you're taken out of action; you're just out of action. Um, And then once the fight is over, then you roll it on that out of action table and you have a one in six chance of dying. Um, where this, it seems to me that when you're reduced to zero or less hit points, you make a death save. Then if you fail, you die. If you succeed, you still have a one in six chance of dying, assuming the rest of the party survives the fight. Um... And then, you know, the last two saves, mental saves are ruled when a character's willpower is tested and their mind or their mind is assailed by a psionic attack. This is another one of those things like disadvantage. Psionic attacks, these things are mentioned here, they're not explained until later, but you know, experienced role players know what these terms mean. Um, and then poison is, you know, a poison a poison save. Um it just says the character uh, who fails the poison save succumbs to the effects of the poison. Um, this doesn't have a lot of save or die poisons. It has more like poison damage. You save or take the poison damage. Um, and that's, yeah, so that's saving throws. The next section is background. So there's a, a, a D100 list of backgrounds. And what you do is you roll twice. So you roll and you get two background features some of them are just flavor some of them are well actually quite a lot of them do have um mechanical benefits as well but they they are all there this is a great list like i'm not going to read all 100 out but i have read all 100 and if you get this i recommend you read through them because they are they're wildly entertaining and evocative um like number one, your parents are always out of town. However, the fridge is always full. You have new clothes and extra lunch money. Add $66 to your starting money. That's 6D6, not 66. Um, There's a lot of foreign exchange student ones. So you're a foreign exchange student from Brazil. You speak English and Portuguese. You're very handsome and pretty. Uh, so it's, it's, playing into a certain stereotype there's also ones for Sweden and Norway that specify that you're handsome and pretty however you are for an exchange student from France you speak English and French that's it so I guess Eric bloat um, is going for the stereotype that Nordic people are inherently sexy but French people are not I, I personally, I read that as a, as a reference to things like the Swedish bikini team that people used to talk about when I was a kid, even though why would Sweden have a bikini team? But um, so your parents have a huge library in the house. Your intelligence is plus one. Um, that would come in really handy in the in game because reconnaissance and research are probably going to be a big part of of combating the these supernatural monsters and obstacles and there's no internet so you're gonna to need to go and find books at the library there's a lot of um, pop culture like obsessions so each one of them has their own line but you could be obsessed with Atari and video games Carl Sagan cryptozoology DC comic books Marvel comic books Dungeons and Dragons of course Godzilla and monster movies, He Man and She Ra, Gem, the music sensation, Indiana Jones horror films, Kung Fu films, Lord of the Rings, My Little Pony, although I guess that would be presumably Generation 1 My Little Pony and not the far superior Generation 4 that we have now. Um, Star Trek, Star Wars, Thundercats, Transformers, uh, WWF Pro Wrestling. This is a, a one that I really like. One of your siblings has recently begun hanging around the vampire gang at the abandoned campground at Taylor's Lake, and at this point, it's not clear whether those vampires are real vampires or just a bunch of goths. And in this game, it could be either way, you know. So, I mean, a lot of these things are not only they have a mechanical benefit, but they are also potential story hooks as well, um, which is one of the reasons why I would definitely recommend reading through the entire list. Then we get to character classes. Now, um, for me, a big part of reviewing this rule set is determining how different it is from kids on bikes. And in kids on bikes, because there's no leveling up, and regardless of what trope you build your class, you build your character around, or whether you build it from scratch, you still have the same spread of abilities, the same six RPG dice that you uh, assign to each of your uh, six ability scores. The class, the tropes are pretty much equal with each other. But because this is backed up by by D&D rules, it is far more linked to a class, like to, to character class. And the, the classes have different benefits. So I, I don't see a lot of scope for building a bespoke character. I'm sure people will homebrew some alternative classes and start, you know, uh, publishing them. And I'm sure Bloat Games will be coming out with supplements like that as well. Basically, there are five classes, each with their own subclasses. The five classes are the brain, the athlete, the outsider, the popular, and the rebel which, you know, um, I really wanted it to mimic um, The Breakfast Club, and I think it probably was The Intention. Um, and, and you could really see those five, those five uh, stereotypical teenage roles in there. The, the brain subclasses are the kid scientist, which is like a really smart kid. Each of these kind of is linked to a, a trope from pop culture. And the kid scientist is, is like a, a traditional smart kid, computer nerd, um, very much maybe like say um, Matthew Broderick in uh, war games. The nerd is more like revenge of the nerds, that kind of that kind of nerd. So still smart, but focusing more on the social awkwardness and unpopularness. And then the geek is not necessarily very smart at all. In fact, there's a prerequisite intelligence of nine, which isn't high. Um, the other two have a prerequisite intelligence of 13. But, you know, it's, it's more that person who doesn't care what other people think. The athlete subclasses are the jock. Um, so that's the typical, you know, captain of the football team popular kind of person. The extreme athlete, which is more like a, a skater or maybe BMX bike, that kind of think about films like Rad, you know, or Gleaming the Cube. Those are some some tropes you could uh, you could draw on. And the Karate Kid, so somebody who's really good at karate and obsessed with kung fu and things. The Outsider includes the breakdancer, the goth, and the metalhead. Um, the popular kids. It's uh the subclasses are the preppy, the princess and the teen heartthrob. The preppy to me is described in terms that remind me a lot of, say, like James Spader's character and Pretty in Pink, the kind of very um very dismissive of other people, very arrogant and classist. Um, Some of these things, I feel like it would be hard to have them in a party, you know, but then again, maybe that's not really how this like kids on bikes doesn't assume that the party will be, or the players will be acting together as a party. And maybe that's not the right assumption for this game either. Maybe you're not always meant to be in the same place, doing the same thing, working together, you know, maybe there's more scope for antagonism between the players, um, which isn't really my thing usually. I don't like to see the players, uh, the player characters fighting with each other. Um, I know a lot of people like that kind of drama. It's not my thing. Um, but there's scope for that here if that is your thing. And then the rebel, the bully, which is, you know, a school bully, the hood, which is more of a criminal and says that you get access to uh, stolen goods or drugs, and the punk rocker, of course. So those are the classes. They each come with their own skills, beginning skills. Um, and the skill system, as we'll see later, um, I think owes a lot to uh, modern d Even d I mean, You can put ranks in it, so it even feels like 3rd edition, 3.5. Um, advancement, you, the, this the... The game only assumes you go up to a level five. At least it only specifies up to level five. Um, it's pretty consistent. It looks like um, from uh, as as you uh, as you advance. When you reach level two, you get a plus one bonus to something. Um, when you when you advance to level three, you get some extra bonuses when you when you uh, reach level five a common thing is you get to use two consecutive survival points on a failed roll, um, as long as that role has something to do with your class ability um, And as we saw with survival rules earlier your the standard rule is you can't you can't spend another survival p- point to reroll if you've already done it you can't do two in a row so at level five you'll be able to do that if it's a a role that has to do with your class, like using a class weapon or a piece of equipment or a class skill. They each come with um, their own starting money, representative of their social status. Um, for instance, the preppy has one thousand d6 dollars. Now, nobody's gonna roll a thousand d6s, so. Personally, if I were building that character, I would roll the d6 and then multiply it by 1,000. And then I would actually write it 1d6 times 1,000. But because most of the other classes have, you know, 4d6, 6d6, um, they're using the consistent notation. But I think realistically nobody's going to roll 1,000 d6s. So the skills and how do they work? Um, Each character selects four skills at level 1 in addition to the class skills, which are detailed in the class descriptions. Each time your character levels up, your character gets two more skill points plus their intelligence modifier. The maximum skill points you can assign to a particular skill is five. Also, your skill level cannot exceed your character's level. Um, so this feels very much like it's it's building it more on the model of 3rd edition and 3.5 with putting, doing ranks and things like that. Um, each of those ranks is presumably giving you a plus one. Um, and of course, there's a corresponding attribute to each skill. So the skills are art and music, basic athletics, brawling, computers, Cooking, dancing, driving, first aid, electronics, intimidation, investigation, knowledge, general, language, martial arts, mathematics, mechanics, outdoorsmanship, paranormal, persuasion, ranged weapons, science, video games, and wrestling. Um, So again, that feels very 3rd edition 3.5 to me. Um, Some things that I like, you can only have one fighting skill. So if you choose brawling, you'll never be a martial artist or a wrestler. If you choose martial arts, that's what you're going to fight with, is martial arts. Um, I like that driving is a skill. Like I'm not a big fan of skill systems, especially in OSR games. I'm I'm not actually a big fan of them in modern D&D either, and I find that I'm using the skill system less and less when I run 5th edition. But I do like that there's a driving skill here, because when you start to turn 16, not everybody starts not everybody does as well with their driving test people you might fail your driving test maybe you don't start i started actually one year later didn't get my driver's license until i was uh, 17 so it becomes this thing that a lot of teenagers can drive legally they don't all have access to a car and not all of them can drive and i feel like putting that as a as a mechanic is a is a good way to represent the reality of being a teenager that Driving isn't something you can take for granted. I also like this first aid skill. So if you remember with healing, with mending wounds, you have to spend five minutes to heal 1d4 hit points. If you have the first aid skill, this requires one minute of uninterrupted concentration and can be done three times a day. So you get to do it more frequently, not just once a day, but three times a day, and it only takes one minute. So there's an advantage to kind of taking that as a skill um then there is age so i like i really like this you don't choose your age you roll your age randomly you roll 1d4 plus 13 so you're going to get somewhere between 14 and 17 um and that's cool you know and if you're 16 or higher then you might have access to a car or to a driver's license Um, if you, especially if you take the driving skill, so there are three alignments, good, neutral, and evil. So it's doing the three point alignment system, but doing good and evil instead of lawful and chaos. Um, that probably makes sense for good and evil have always been easier to understand for most people than law versus chaos, but like, aren't all teenagers chaotic? So, um, I can dig that. Um. And then armor class, all characters have an armor class of a base armor class of 10, and then they get their dexterity modifier. The cool thing about armor class in this is that because you're not an actual medieval warrior, you do not actually have access to armor. So you these are the kinds of things you use for armor apart from your dexterity modifier. A leather jacket or leather pants, either of which will give you a plus one. Football pads will give you a plus two. Combat boots will give you a plus one. A bulletproof vest, now it says rare in terms of availability, and you got to think, yeah, how are you going to get a bulletproof vest? But some of those backgrounds are your parents are survivalists or, or, you know, work in the military or in the law enforcement. So you might be able to steal one from them. Tactical survival gear, again, rare. That will give you a plus four my favorite garbage can lid this this is something i would really love to see in game is somebody strapping a garbage can lid to their chest in in lieu of plate armor it only gives you a plus 1 because at the end of the day it's you know probably made of aluminum it's a garbage can lid it's not plate mail motorcycle helmet that's that's pretty cool then you know you get a list of some equipment and you can spend your extra money on other things other equipment in the list of equipment are you know backpack lantern a full can of gas fresh rations which says trail mix now because because this is taking place in the real world that trail mix is like literal trail mix you know it's like the kind of you know those thing, bags that you can buy at the gas station 50 feet of rope that exists in real life small sack large sack a lighter now my dad always told me never ever go into the woods without a big lighter torches now that's a weird one okay for for americans torch means like a medieval torch In in the uk a torch is a flashlight um i don't know where you would get torches in real life when i was a teenager i wouldn't have known where to get torches or how to make them but maybe 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 if i'd stuck with the boy scouts i would have would have known that a canteen you know you can get those from sporting goods supplies a long stick so there's your 10 foot pole it's probably not literally 10 foot 10 feet but um when i read this i have you know an image of like the the scene in stand by me where river phoenix um Gets a long branch and starts poking the uh, the pond that's blocking their path. And he's like, hey, it's not that deep. We can walk across, you know. A quiver of arrows or bolts. Um, well, you know, when I was a kid, I had a friend who did archery as a hobby. I'm sure he had an arrow and a quiver of arrow or a, a bow. And, uh, he had a bow and a quiver of arrows. So, you know, and knew how to use it. 'Cause that was his that was the sport he did. And of course a flashlight. Then you can get these weapons. Now, you know, the weapons include things like brass knuckles, a baseball bat, a cross a crossbow. A knife. We could all probably get a knife. Pepper spray, a nightstick, a whip. Uh, so weapons list the weapons list below below, I think it should probably be above. They do one oh there's a there's a separate list of weapons that do 1 HP of damage and the target is then stunned. So I see what it is. It's the pepper spray does stun damage. So it does less than 1 HP of damage, but the target is then stunned for 1d4. Or it does 1 HP of damage and the target is then stunned for 1d4 turns. Being stunned means the character cannot attack; it is at disadvantage on all rolls until they are no longer stunned. Um, all the other weapons do basically a D6 or a D6 plus or minus one or two, um, which again sounds like it's based on white box, but I think is really just meant to uh, emulate how much weaker these characters are than a standard fantasy character they also use the usage die so all consumable items have a usage die um the same way they do in um the black hack and that is one of my favorite black hack mechanics um i think that an an elegant solution to managing resources some of these uh weapons i'm not sure how easy would, would be to get them like, although well, I don't see a gun on here, so, you know, but I mean, I don't know you would get a shuriken, um, a sword or a large knife. Well, I guess if your parents are battle reenactors or collectors, um, one of the things that I really like about this game is the potential to have to rely on mundane items. That's why I like the garbage can lid, um, armor and stuff like that. Um, so I would, I would. I would rather see things like the baseball bat, a screwdriver is one of the the weapons, a spear is on here, so I don't know where you would get a spear. XP and leveling up. In the original fantasy RPG, experience points, or XP, was awarded for slaying a monster and gathering treasure. DP&D uses a leveling system that takes the focus off combat and rewards characters in five different ways. Session survival, encounter XP, exceptional role-playing, and discretionary and hero XP. So session survival is basically, you know, if, if you're still alive at the end of the session, you get one experience point. You can earn up to three... You can earn encounter XP up to three times per session, and and each each time you would get one XP. So one encounter XP is earned by being involved in a combat scenario. If there are three separate combat scenarios in one gaming session, then three XP is earned. If there are five, still only three. So that that's the that's the maximum you can get in one session. So if you have five combats, you still only get three XP. Exceptional role playing. XP can be ex- exceptional role playing XP can be earned one time per session for one XP. This is given for a player that goes above and beyond in the department of role playing. I like that because it rewards role playing but not overly. You don't get like loads of extra. You just you will get one extra experience point if you do good role playing discretionary xp can be earned up to twice in a gaming session for a maximum total of two xp it's awarded at the gm's discretion this can be given for things like solving a difficult puzzle overcoming the odds achieving something due to luck so that's just like i think every gm has things like that that they just, you know, go ahead and have a little bit of extra XP for that. If there's something that the players did that you liked and thought was good and you feel like they should get a little reward, give them a little bump on their XP, you know. Um, one of the things in 5e, I, I award inspiration for things like that. I don't award inspiration for what the rule, what the player's handbook says you should award it for. Just that if, if they've done a good job at a certain thing, like I like the way they RP'd something or I liked, um, how they like the clever plan they came up with or how they even arrived at the plan or something it's like you can go ahead and have inspiration for that hero xp is given to a player who performs a selfless act or, or valor something above and beyond the goal of the session unlike the other types of xp that can be earned hero xp can only be earned by one player per gaming session and if nothing heroic is done then no player earns the hero xp so basically the uh leveling you you only need 5 experience points to reach level 2 um and only 41 to reach level 5 um using this method all character classes level at the same pace so you could also just do this as like you can decide to level them up when you want to But I like this, I like this, this, you don't see, or this is, this is very unfamiliar from a D and D perspective of having such low XP values, um, and, and such a short progression, just, you know, just get them up to five, but you know, what, what under these rules, what would a 10th level character look like? You'd stop being an ordinary teenager and then you'd be playing a different game, Optional. For groups that are very heavy into role-playing and not as much into combat, it is recommended to give 1 XP per hour of gameplay. This takes the emphasis off combat-driven play and still rewards players for playing the game the way they enjoy it and allows their characters to progress at a much more normal rate. So, two, 4 hours, you reach level 2. Th- 10 hours, you reach level 3. And to reach level 5, it's 35 hours. So... Mm-hmm. That's an interesting. That using that method, you really see how long they expect a a player character to last in gameplay hours. That by the time you have, see if you broke, I don't know, the sessions down into four hour sessions. You know, seven times. So, I mean, it's basically there's a there's a time limit on how long you're gonna play this character and after you've clocked up thirty five hours, you've reached level five you're probably gonna have one last really big adventure and then you're probably gonna retire that character and start all over again that's a that's an interesting uh an interesting way to envisage the progression so Then there's a lot of pre-rolled characters, which are at least, for for no other reason, they're at least good to see what a finished character would look like. Then there's an example of play, which basically focuses on a skill check. And it focuses on a couple of skill checks with an NPC. Um, That's interesting because this is not a combat game so it showed by not including combat in the example of play that one once again underscores that this is not about fighting monsters but it also it's a very modern uh a modern skill check scenario it's like okay i i rolled into a roll investigation to search for clues and they rolled a certain number and then the, the game master's like you don't find any clues and when I think of an OSR game, I think of, you'd have to say, they say they were searching a football field. It's like, well, where are you looking? A football field's a big thing. You can't search the whole thing in a reasonable amount of time. So where are you looking first? What are you looking for? What are you, what, where would you search for clues? And there's none of that in the example of play. It's just like, I roll investigation to search the football field for clues. It's like, oh, okay, you don't find any clues. That feels like a modern game to me, not an OSR game. But then again, you don't have to run it that way. You're the game master. You can go ahead and make them be specific about what they're looking for and how they're looking. So, one of my favorite sections is the section that comes next: nineteen eighties versus today. It's basically just a list of like nineteen eighties things with their modern equipment or equivalents. Paper maps. Today we have GPS, Google Maps. I would actually have preferred this to go in the other order and start with. The modern thing and then use that to look up the 80s equivalent so i find myself using the the today column first man buns old lady hair buns you know so that the modern the today shopping online 1980s mail away shopping from catalogs youtube today mtv 1980s here's my favorite bill cosby bill cosby Kindle, reading an actual book, searching online, phone books and dictionaries. That is um a great one to have listed here because it's going to affect the gameplay. You know, if you need to find out about a, something, the history of, a, of an area, a rumor, a region, a monster, you know, a, People in the modern world would reach for their phones and Google it. You can't do that in the 1980s. You have to. That's why so many of these characters come with library cards as part of their starting equipment, is because you need to go look things up. Texts, fax transmissions. Ah, blockbuster video stores. The modern equivalent is Netflix or Redbox. Um, this, is, this is my other favorite one. Today, social media. 1980s socializing some of these are a little bit judgmental um, but I grew up in the 80s and I, I see where he's coming from so that's basically the whole of the players section the rest of it is the um, the game master section um, so there's rule uh, so Uh, it specifically says dark places and Demigorgon should not be a combat heavy game. The character classes presented in this book are not medieval warriors and wizards who are equipped to battle dragons and mythical mythic beasts. The classes here will fare well when fighting other normal teenagers, but are not designed to do full frontal assault on most of the monsters later in this section. I like how it spells that out. Um, DP and D work said it's best when it was run as a monster of the week style campaign. And that's also how I run kids on bikes. It's like, what, what, uh, paranormal experience are they going to have this week? And I, I think of things like the X files, like not the mythology episodes, but the ones where it was just a monster of the week or, or other earlier monster of the week type things, even like Scooby-Doo, you know, every week there's a new mystery, This game draws inspirations from movies like The Goonies, E.T. and The Lost Boys, and TV shows like Stranger Things, Eerie Indiana, and Scooby-Doo. And then it has its own appendix N, um, full of, uh, ways to draw inspiration for your game. And (laughs) reading that list is like reading a list of all the things that I loved when I was a kid in the 80s. Um... I love this, rules versus rulings. DP and D requires a minimum of two participants, one player and one game master. Because I sometimes only have one player, um, it's really good to have a game that specifically says you can run this for one player Um, because you might not be able to get a full group here. The GM should work with all players to make the most enjoyable experience possible. Um, Yet it's the GM's duty to make fair rulings and it's the player's duty to accept these rulings as final without argument. Then there's a note on house rules, which is saying, you know, basically, this is the kind of thing that I think we all can do with remembering. House rules can create a unique and more fun way to play a role-playing game, but inconsistency or constantly changing rules can make for a turbulent gaming experience for the players. This is basically reminding you to make sure that you are clear about house rules that you don't change them on the fly or keep changing it without warning so that the players know the players need to know where they stand. And I think that is important. I often think of things from a game master's perspective, which is like, I have the right to make whatever house rules I want, but keep in mind that you, you don't want to accidentally pull the rug under your player's feet. They need to understand the ramifications of the of the choices that they're making. And that often requires them being abreast of your house rules. Time and Turns, it uses the black hack terminology of moments and minutes, which I mentioned when I, re, when I was discussing the black hack, how I don't feel the need to, to... I don't like the term moment anyway. To me, a moment is a very vague uh, unit of time. It's not even a unit of time. It's an indiscriminate brief amount of time that is memorable in some way. Um, so there are some, uh, rules about movement, which, um, outdoor movement is capped at, um, a hurried movement is 18 miles per day, a march is 9 miles per day, and a stroll is 6 miles per day, but then you could possibly have access to a vehicle and increase that, um, standard movement rates refer to a character's ability to move around on foot. Um, they're non combat rates. They don't actually give those rates, um, in the character class description. Um, but this game kind of feels, especially cause there's not going to be a lot of tactical combat. It feels like you, you know, why bother even having the movement rates? It's just a, re- how, how much distance can you reasonably expect to cover? So, there's rules for triggering traps, locked or barred doors, and lights, and they feel very much like the rules that you would know from old school D&D. There's rules about advantage and disadvantage specified. Um... Difficulty checks for skill roles, which are very much in line with 5th edition. Easy is 10, medium is 15, difficult is 20, and near impossible is 25. So, although the skill ranks remind me of 3rd edition in 3.5 and Pathfinder, this spread of difficulties reminds me more of 5th edition. And there is the rule of the natural 20 is an automatic success and the natural 1 is an automatic failure. Encumbrance. This is uh, very much like the black hack. A character can carry a number of items equal to their strength attribute without issue. Carrying over this amount means they are encumbered and all attribute tests are at disadvantage and the character can also only move somewhere nearby. You know, I wonder if when they're talking about the movement rates, if they were just talking about those vague um, nearby, like close nearby, distant, far away. But... um, yeah, because it uses those the, the, <clears throat> the theater of the mind vaguely defined distances that you have in the Black Hack. So yeah, if you're encumbered, a character can only move somewhere nearby and they simply cannot carry more than double their strength. So that's pretty much the exact wording from the Black Hack. It's not a million miles away from James Bond's untold adventures either. It's a really good way of dealing with encumbrance without having to total up the actual weight in pounds of all your gear. I really like that, it's one of, It's another one of these things that it saves you on bookkeeping without foregoing the resource management um, obstacle. If a character uses armor, an item or weapon that their class prohibits, then the character can still use it, but at disadvantage. And that's also, that's like if you use a non-class weapon in the black hack, you get disadvantage. There are rules for combat, traditional. The game master determines if either side is surprised, which is 1 to 2 on a d6 or by the GM's own judgment call. Then rule for initiative. One rule is made for each side. Um, the initiative attacks first, then the, then the other side. And then without rolling, new initiative, step 3 is repeated. So that is, you know, that's very familiar. Um, that's kind of, as they say, it's traditional. Optional is rule for surprise, rule for initiative, once for each side. Then the winner attacks with ranged weapons first, then, um, then the winner, the winning side attacks with melee weapons. So you divide it into phases. Then the party that lost the initiative. Does you know ranged weapons and melee weapons in phases, and then keeping the same initiative, repeat steps three, four, and five until combat is resolved. I don't see the advantage of having phases if you're also going to keep initiative order. Having like phases, um, if you think of like the Holmes basic initiative, where you always go in your deck's order, but you resolve options options in phases, and you know like ranged weapons always comes before melee attacks so you take that into consideration when you when you decide what you're going to do on the turn But it i don't see it mattering as much um... for this for this uh... method if you're still going to go inside initiative order because the whole point is that um... when you get to the missile phase of Holmes' basic initiative then Everybody who's going to make a a ranged attack is going to make a ranged attack in that phase, but in order of their dexterity. So you're, you know, you and the bad guys are kind of always going in a mixed up order. And eventually you probably figure it out after a round or two. Well, their dex is obviously higher than mine because they go ahead of me. But it adds a bit more. There's a bit. It makes it a bit more dynamic. And when you're still keeping side initiative, so all the people who decide that one initiative does all their actions first. I don't see why you would bother uh, dividing it into into phases. And then there's a third optional, which is roll for surprise. Each combatant rolls for initiative. So this is this is a individual initiative, basically. Um. Uh, yeah okay um, There, there, there is a rule in the game where you add your dex bonus to your initiative roll and it suggests that when you're rolling side initiative that you have the person with the highest dex roll initiative so that they can add their dex and then everybody gets to act on, on that initiative um, which seems a bit weird it's sort of like you just basically because one person in the party has high initiative that bonus now applies to everybody in the party even if the party includes somebody whose dex is four. Um, I personally, for an OSR game, I'm always going to just default to roll a d6 for each side, and then roll. And I like to roll each time because I like the fact that you don't necessarily know who's going to act first at the start of each round of combat. That's I would probably just do that. So then it, it specifies the distance, close, nearby, far away, and distant, which again, that we've seen that in the black hack. Um, attacking blind, you get a negative 4 penalty. That's a lot like Swords and Wizardry. Attacking a prone character, the victim, the, per, the person who's prone, uh, loses all bonuses to AC and suffers a negative 4 penalty to their attack rolls. Um Critical damage, if you roll a natural 20, you double the damage. And you, in the, if you roll a natural one, you suffer some kind of failure, so it's putting that one, that rule in. Toughness is a form of damage reduction. Now, none of the standard character classes have toughness, but some monsters do, and there's some optional characters who have psychic powers who get some toughness as well. Um, so that mechanic is basically, whatever your toughness rating is, you reduce that amount of damage when you take it. This is my favorite of the of the rules in this book for combat. Called shot. When declaring an attack on a specific body part or target, there is a negative three penalty for targeting a specific area. I like that rule a lot because, you know, players sometimes want to call shots. First of all, there's some monsters where it is advantageous to target a specific part of them, and they're going to want to try that. And other times, you know, I mean usually creatures can't live without their heads. So you might want to target their head and you have to figure out how to resolve that. And there's been a lot of different ways that different systems have resolved, um, called shots. I mean, one of the first times we ever saw that was in the Blackmore supplement of the original dungeons and dragons where it divided each, um, each creature's body into a percentage of its total body. And then you gave it each body part, a percentage of its total hit points and you know, it got really complicated. You had to basically just, if it were humanoid, then all the humanoids had a, a similar um, spread. But then, you know, you have to think about if it's not a humanoid, you have to envisage the body and decide which percentage of its total body is its like head and its thorax and its arms. And, you know, I don't want to do that kind of prep for an encounter on the off chance that a player is going to do a cold shot. And the thing is that it should be possible. I mean, you could always just say you can't do cold shots, but in real life, it's possible to attempt to target a specific body part and it should be more difficult, but not impossible. And if you think about if you're attacking and you can't see your opponent, but you know, their general area, you only get a negative four. The cold shot is a negative three. So it's nearly as hard as targeting an opponent. You can't see, but not quite that hard. I feel like that's a really good happy medium and in fact I'm probably going to be importing this into my white box game that the next time somebody wants to make a cold shot I'm going to say you'll take a negative 3 penalty to your attack roll but you can go ahead if you if you still hit the AC after your negative 3 penalty then it's a hit I I just think that is an elegant solution to a cold shot it is exactly the kind of easy mechanic i'm looking for for something that should be possible but difficult then there's a section on firearms and notice that we're not in the actual firearms in the player section of equipment because <clears throat> teenager well on the one hand teenagers can get access to firearms all too easily um, but in the in the game it's going to be assumed that you don't necessarily get access to um, firearms so the GM's discretion. You know, these are they, they. include things like flamethrowers and stuff, um, automatic weapons. They all still do. Their their damage is based on d sixes, but it's like two d six, three d six, four d six. They're they're big, big heavy hitting weapons. There's some advice on rituals and magic and paranormal things. You basically. There's no rules for magic, but it's saying you know you can, you can decide that magic is real and that your characters can, your players can learn about it. But there's no actual magic system. There is, however, a psionic system, and an optional psionic character class with three subs subclasses, which are Experiment X, Pyro, and Telekinetic. And like the other character classes were based on tropes from popular culture, so are these ones. Experiment X, your starting equipment is a dirty medical gown. This is clearly 11 from Stranger Things. Um, Pyro is probably based on the fire starter um, portrayed by a young Drew Barrymore. And Telekinetic is probably more like um, Carrie, the original Carrie as well. There's some pre-rolled psionic characters, so you can see what they look like. I'm not a big fan in this style of game. Like, for instance, I don't really use the powered character much in Kids on Bikes, even though the rules do suggest that you should. I feel like that's an optional thing that I don't want to use all the time. It's not the kind of story I'm trying to create. I'm trying to create a story about ordinary people pushing themselves to do extraordinary things. So I don't see myself using that if I run this game. Um, then there are... there's a great section of bespoke well they're called adventure seeds they're basically monsters with the backstory um the first one is called alien life form which if you remember that's what alf stands for from the television series alf um although the description of this is much more like et there's a lost alien who um who's presumably a good person and your characters can Meet this person, meet this alien life form. His name is Ninao. And uh, try to maybe help him out. Ninao comes from the planet Nanu, which is probably a reference to Mork from Orc. Nanu, Nanu. Um, so this is like, it's a monster, but it's not really a monster. It won't be a villain. There's the Chupacabra. The adventure hook for these Chupacabras is there's a, there's a mated pair of Chupacabras, and they're going to be breeding gremlins this killer of your dreams now it shows a a woman with her face missing but the description is basically her name is mandy kugler and it's you know it's like a female version of freddy Krueger, um and yeah so she attacks people in their dreams and in her dream in the dream world she's nearly undefeatable but if you can pull her out of her dreams she becomes more of a normal person and is defeatable Phantom Fairlane. That's basically a haunted car. So think about Christine, the Stephen King book. There's a there's a a gorge in this town called the Poplik Gorge. There's a train trestle that goes across it. And a family that lives near this train trestle, and they have a they they are custodians of a goat monster, a goat man called the Poplik Monster. And this monster has its own adventure hook. Basically, it, um, it can be quite adversarial, but it doesn't really attack unless provoked. So there's a lot of role-playing opportunities with this. It's, it's scary and it's deadly, but it won't necessarily fight you. Um, there's a gang of werewolves called the Silver Bullets. Now, the name Silver Bullet is definitely a reference to Silver Bullet, the Stephen King novel. However, it's, so it's a gang of, of Native American werewolves. I feel like that's kind of getting into taking inspiration from Twilight. Um, but these are these are traditional werewolves. You know, if they, if they bite you, you might become a werewolf, and they're not in full control of themselves in their wolf form. Son of the Mothman, so it's like a a, a smaller version of the Mothman. Tara the Clawed Menace, so this... This thing attacks people at lover's lane and it um, presumably is um, the ghost of a woman who is betrayed by her lover and she now attacks other lovers. We had the silver bullet werewolves. We also have the teenage werewolf. This is a genetic werewolf, so it can't pass its werewolfism onto you if it bites you and it retains control of itself in wolf form, but it's basically like, it's basically teen wolf, teen wolf scott howard portrayed by uh, michael j fox michael j fox is mostly known for playing marty mcfly and alex keaton so the this werewolf's name is marty keaton so it's clearly a reference to um teen wolf and that's the end of these specific adventure hook monsters what i like about them is that so many of them are unashamedly inspired by an actual film or book um and i Um, In my last podcast, I talked about how, you know, you shouldn't be afraid to rip a famous story off for your adventure and even like run the Hobbit. You know, even if your characters, even if your players know they're running the Hobbit, because they can make different decisions than were in the book. They don't want, you're not not expecting them to play the exact book word by word. So I love how this game is saying, play this game and play Team Wolf. Play this game and play Christine. Play this game and play Nightmare on Elm Street. You know, it'll be fun. And I think it would be fun. I I would be really excited to run any of those scenarios. Then there's a bunch of... There's some NPCs that are statted out. That includes things like, you know, common people, policemen, cult leaders, soldiers... A Soviet spy, a ninja, if you want to go there. Then there's a bunch of monsters that are like basically D and D monsters. Statted out for this game. Um, this Devourer of Memories is basically a mind flare. Bigfoot, dire beasts—so dire ape, dire bear, dire boar, dire wolf. The doppelganger, dryads, elementals. So you can put basically D and D monsters in here as well. That's that's cool. But I actually like the other, the Bespoke Adventure Hook monsters so much that I would really focus on those. But it's good that you you can basically, you could have somebody's D&D game come to life. You know, I mentioned earlier how you might um, run a a game of D&D in this game. You know, have the player characters roll up characters. And so you could have their D&D game come to life. There's there's scope for that. There's also animals. And of course... It would be good to have these stats like guard dogs, snakes, you know, things that they might actually um, encounter in the game. There's NPC and villain generator tar- tables, so you can generate that you can roll dice to choose their gender, age, height, what their type is. So their types is on, D- on a D10: a board celebrity, an organized crime boss, a cult leader, a cult leader anti-american spy politician or church leader scholar or visionary scientist visionary serial killer corrupt cop or military operative and an educator that you can roll on their support systems that's on a d12 so where do they get their money they're wealthy they have devoted followers followers military backing political power legal influence power of the press advanced technology secrets or blackmail personal ability and skill Paranormal guidance, occult and ritual, or alien leaders. You can roll on their motivation, and then you can, there's a D100 list of quirks. Like, doesn't plan. Poor strategist. Good tactician. That's one of the quirks. I like that one particularly because it reminds me of how I play chess. Like, I'm I'm not a great chess player in the mid game when there are too many variables to consider. I find it hard to get my head around all the variables. But if I can last until endgame when most of the pieces have been captured and there are far fewer variables, that's where I really come into my own. And so this is somebody who's not great at planning ahead, but is good at reacting to the situation that's happening right now. And that's a, that's definitely a specific thing. Um, cannot speak uses a computer-aided voice. That's one of the potential quirks. So Stephen Hawking is the main villain was a child celebrity that's amazing somebody like uh the person who played uh the beaver from leave it to beaver is now bitter about the fact that they're no longer famous and has hatched a plot for world domination then there's random monster generators so you know which type of body they have humanoid equine aquatic servant serpent avian rodent etc um, you can you so you can give them a really random body type. You can give them some different uh, you know, abilities. Basically just keep rolling on these tables until you get um something unique and random. Then there's a D100 list of basic adventure hooks. The Taylor's Lake monster has been seen more frequently at the lake, so that's one of the adventure um monsters detailed. Bigfoot has been spotted near Taylor Lake. A cult leader is performing necromancy at the Indian graveyard. Well, that sounds like bad news. Um a hellhound is rumored to be stalking the normal, northern hills near the river. You know. Um let me see if there's there's a gang of vampires that have taken over the abandoned camp gra- campground. And that's page 149. Oh yeah, cuz there's a the, um Yeah, so the, the, there's vampire stats given in the classic monsters section. And then there's setting information on J Town or Jefferson's Town um which gives the geography and a lot of uh NPCs that live there including the infamous reverend who um, blames everything on on uh, the role playing game and is giving into the satanic panic. Um and of course I think there's already available on uh, RPG Now and DriveThruRPG full like folder setting information for Jefferson Jefferson Town if you want to run your game in that town rather than make up your own game. So, um I ended up rambling just as long as I did in my first draft. Um so we'll call that a fail. Um, I may not do many more of these reviews like this because it's, uh, I'm, I'm really intending to limit the length of the podcast to, well, I think I'm averaging 40 minutes or something, 48 minutes. Um, maybe 30 minutes is what I should be aiming for. Anyways, bottom line, uh, should you get this game? This looks like a really fun game. I cannot see how you could play this game and not have fun. Um, everything about it looks amazing. Um, would you Should you get it as opposed to Kids on Bikes? You probably don't need both games. Um, but again, Kids on Bikes is not an OSR game. It's not marketed as an OSR game. It's not backed up by D&D mechanics. It's much more of a storytelling game. There's no leveling up. It's also not restricted to the eighties time period, so if you're not into the eighties, you probably would want that game um, and uh this game is is it's completely based around the eighties, although the background work has gone into linking it to that period, and they've done a really great job um and because it is uh links to uh, old-school mechanics and classes and class progression and experience points and stuff like that. If you're looking for more of a DD and d based system, then this is going to be the one for you. Um, I probably won't switch to this for my kids, because especially since this con- combines d20 roll high for eight, for attack rolls, but roll under for saving throws... And, uh, the skill system, I feel like that is probably too many mechanics for my five-year-old. Um, so I will stick to the much more rules-light kids on bikes. Um, what I think I probably will do is I will, I've been trying to sell the, uh, RPG group I game with at my friendly local game shop on, on kids on bikes and they haven't been taking the bait. They may, uh they may be more interested in this because it, it'll have more familiar mechanics to them. Or I'm I'm really intrigued by or inspired by the, the uh, fact that it says you just need a minimum of two participants, one game master and one player. I've been trying to get my wife to play an RPG for a long time. And I wonder if I could convince her to uh, roll up a character and we can start doing some some exploration and then maybe ultimately all my end game for this is i'm trying to get my entire family as my rpg group um then we could all do that together as a full-on family activity so um but yeah this is a this is an amazing game it's right up my street um I can't think of anything I really dislike about it. I do note that it combines um mechanics from several different editions of the game. That's not a problem for people who've played all those editions. You're not gonna get lost. Um but that is one thing I'm aware of. That's the closest that comes to a negative. Um, but it wouldn't stop me playing it or running it, and I wouldn't I wouldn't be worried about running it or getting lost. Um and this 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 looks like a rockin' good time and um, yeah, I can't, I can't see people playing this and not having fun. It's just, um, it's an amazing game and I'm really glad I got it. So until next time, uh, thank you for sticking with me to the bitter end of this excessively long podcast. Play well and let the dice roll where they may.